we, we have to move from a kind of a, a great encouraging moment to kind of a very difficult heavy sermon, so I apologize for that, but this is God's Word and this is where we happen to be in it, in our study of Samuel, 2 Samuel 11. The older I get, the more aware I become of the fact that all of us are just one, one bad decision away from essentially wrecking our lives. And it could be something that to us at the moment feels very small or something that seems insignificant at the time, but it really just takes one thing and it, it has the potential then to kind of snowball into this life-altering chaos. You know what I mean by that? There are actually a lot of television shows in the last several years that kind of follow a similar plot line. Um, I won't mention the names, but we, we watch those shows because I think as a culture, we kind of enjoy watching people's lives fall apart. Something weirdly entertaining, you know, that captures our attention. Maybe it makes us feel better about the mess in our lives. I don't know what it is, but that's probably the reason why the story of David and Bathsheba is so uh, famous. It's so uh, captivating and so interesting. Um, last week, we saw David at his best. Today, we're going to see David at his worst. And it all starts with an afternoon nap, incidentally. So, uh, David, uh, this is Second Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. And it is on the screen in English and in Spanish. <clears throat> it says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now already we see a problem. Where should David be? He should be with his army on the battlefield. But he's not. Verse 2, and so it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Well, what should David do in this situation? He should... Look away, right? He should walk away. I mean, he can't help the fact that she was there, but he should immediately avert his eyes, right? But it's not what he does. And you might ask the question, how often do problems begin with our eyes, right? Verse 3. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Did you notice her name, Bathsheba? 
means daughter of the oath. Daughter of the oath. And I think it's important to notice that the writer mentions her father and her husband. She's not only someone else's wife, she's someone's daughter. She's a daughter of the oath. In other words, she's spoken for, David. She has a purpose. She has a place. She has a family. In other words, she's not an object. Verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she returned to her house. I want you to notice how impersonal this verse is compared to the previous verse. David took her. Like a what? Like an object. There is no conversation recorded by the writer. He doesn't speak to her or mention her name in the story. He uses her and then he discards her. And I don't think it's reading into the text to say that David the king is clearly taking advantage of this woman. Using his position as king. And so it's hard to imagine this under the circumstances as some sort of consensual thing. And what that makes this is more than just adultery. In David's eyes... She's an object. And then, she's a problem. Or at least, the baby is a problem. Verse 5 says, The woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So do you see the snowball effect? You see how this started with just a lingering glance? Looking too long when he shouldn't have looked and... I want to pause briefly. I want to mention that so far, this story is actually um, literary in a literary way. It's very comparable to the fall of Adam. Genesis 3 said what? It said the fruit was good to the eyes. Eve takes and eats and offers some to her husband. Adam eats. And what does Adam say to God? The woman made me do it. It's also comparable to the fall of King Saul. What did Samuel say the king would do? He said the king would take, take, take. And what is David doing? He's taking someone who doesn't belong to him. Now after this, David brings Uriah back from the battle and he tries to get him to sleep with his wife thinking that that will somehow cover up his sin. He even gets the man drunk, but Uriah keeps refusing to go home because he felt like it would be inappropriate when the army is still out on the battlefield at war 
for him to enjoy being home with his wife. So he won't go back home. And to help you understand this, the Israelites, before they go into battle, they made this vow of holiness. Something that David also should have done, even if he wasn't going to go out to battle. The men of Israel did this. And so, Uriah is not willing to go home. David's plan fails. And David, being desperate to cover up his adultery, takes another step. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. I want you to pause and just let it sink in. David sent this man back with his own death sentence in hand. I mean, how low can you go, right? And we're not going to read this, but Joab receives the letter and he realizes that it's actually a really dumb plan that would have quickly exposed David's intentions to hide his sin. So instead, what Joab does is he alters the plan. He sends Uriah's whole unit closer to the walls of the city where many of them die, including Uriah. It was a terrible military decision, but it got Uriah killed and it also protected David's reputation. Now, several commentaries make what I think is an important observation at this point, and it's this sin makes us stupid, sin distorts our ability to reason. And you can really see that in David, what's happening here. You can sense his frustration. You can sense his anxiety over being exposed. He's been a great king up to this point, right? I can't have it getting out. I can't have people know that I've done this. And what psychology tells us is that we don't reason very well when we're experiencing anger or anxiety about something, right? In our frantic attempts to try to fix the problems that we've created, we usually just make them worse. Because sin literally makes us stupid. Verse 26, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Before we move into chapter 12 and look at the resolution, I I I want us to consider how destructive sin can be. And I want you to see the the progression here. David was literally at his humanly best. He was a good king. He was doing everything pretty much right immediately before his greatest failure. The writer puts them side by side. And there's an important lesson in that. 
Because it is so tempting for us to let our guard down when things are going well for us. When we feel like we're doing what God wants us to do. We're we're living our best life. Too blessed to be stressed, right? We just feel like everything's going well. And we'll watch somebody else fail and we'll think to ourselves, I would never do that. What is this guy thinking? I did it this week. Saw some guy in the newspaper do something that just seemed absolutely ridiculous to me. I'm thinking, what does it take for somebody to do something like that? And it was like, this Holy Spirit was like, be careful, Mike. (laughs) Be careful. It's such a dangerous place for our hearts to be. Because we have an enemy on the inside. And that's the way I want you to think about sin. It's the way the Bible describes sin. It's not out there waiting to get you. It's in here. We have an enemy on the inside. And he can't do much with our humility. But he can destroy us with our pride. If you think that you're immune to the sins of David... You're in a very dangerous place. It was John Owen who famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord was displeased with David. And then verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan, Nathan the prophet, to David. God sent Nathan to David. That alone was an act of mercy, right? We may succeed in our sinful plans, but God in His mercy will still come after His people. And Nathan came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. And I don't know if that's how he said it, but that's how I imagined it. You are the man, right? And those words had to hit David like a punch to the face. And now as David realizes the truth, God begins to speak and he strips David bare. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. In other words, I kept you from being murdered more than once. 
I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And as if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So God said to David, I gave and I gave and I gave. And still, you took. David ruined people's lives. This is not the king of justice and equity that we read about last week. This is David at his worst. Verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's the understatement of the year, right? (laughs) I want you to notice this. David's apology is literally two words in Hebrew. Three syllables. That's it. But you know what? The writer wants us to view this little apology as genuine repentance. And before we go any further, I want to suggest to you, as difficult as that is for us to reason with, it's thoroughly biblical. Repentance in the Bible always looks simple and humble. Think of the tax collector in Luke 18 who Jesus used in a parable. He said, the man prayed, God have mercy on me, a sinner. That's just five words in Greek. Not complicated. Very simple. And the question is, what more can we really say, right? I mean, what more can we do when we're exposed like this? What can we offer God in this moment except humility? David would later reflect on this moment and write Psalm 51, which is for many of us a favorite psalm. And the theme of that psalm is exactly this, that we have nothing to offer God and He wants nothing except a broken heart and a humble spirit. The whole psalm is about David basically saying, God has to make me clean. I can't can't do it. 
can't fix this mess. I can't clean up what I messed up. It's just not how it works. All God wants is for us to submit to His Word. He exposes us, and then He waits for our answer. And all we can do is just submit to the accusation, stand naked before Him, and say, yep, I did it. I'm sorry. That's me. I just want to say, we haven't actually made it to the difficult part yet. Okay, you ready? Verse 14. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And that's the story that follows Bathsheba's first son gets sick and dies. And there's an obvious tension here, right? Uh, you know, we're Christian, we, you, in the church, you kind of read the Bible and sometimes you just kind of read through stuff like this. You don't stop to think about what's actually being said, but I'm, we're going to do that. We're going to stop and think, okay? There's a tension here. God is obviously showing David grace in the sense that David deserved death personally but was allowed to live. He's also allowed to keep the kingdom, which part of me thinks Saul must have been rolling over in his grave, right? I mean, why is God letting David off the hook when David's sin is arguably much worse than Saul's? But is God letting David off the hook? I had to read this a few times as a father for it to sink in. Any good father, if he is presented with the choice between his own life and the life of his child, is going to pick what? Take me, not the baby. Right? You ever thought about that this way? Take me, Lord, not the child. What did this baby do? It's one of the most common statements I hear from new fathers, right? They hold their baby for the first time and they say something like, I would die for this kid, right? But God's decision was to show grace to David and instead take the life of David's son. Does that feel like grace to the father? Probably not. And I'm going to suggest this is nothing less than a substitutionary death. The baby dies in David's place. And, you know, we can have later, if you want to talk to me about the theology around this and the fact that babies are born sinful just like everybody else and 
deserving of God's wrath. We can talk about that. I'll try to convince you of it from Scripture. But it's nonetheless still gut-wrenching. When you stop and think about this, even though that's true, this baby is not guilty of the adultery and murder of his father. And David pleads with God not to take the baby. He does, just like you and I would. He prayed, he fasted day and night until the child died. The servants were afraid to tell David the baby had died, thinking that he might hurt himself because he's so emotionally upset about this, right? But do you know what David did when he heard the news? He went to church. He got up, got dressed, ate, and went to church. He worshipped God. And that, I think, is how we're supposed to know that David's repentance was genuine. That's kind of the, the outcome of the story. But I want to show you something. This is the structure of what we just read. And it's striking. Okay, just take a look at it. I'm going to put it on the screen in Spanish in just a minute. I want you to look at the structure. Okay, do you see how the bottom mirrors the top? Okay, here it is in Spanish. The bottom mirrors the top. Okay, this is known as in in Hebrew a chiastic story which ex- explains that what a chiasm is that it's it's the same after as it was before it's basically a, a reversal or a, repeat, a repetition right um, which is very common in the Bible especially in Samuel and I don't usually show you the structure but this is important it's important because what do you see in the middle Nathan confronts David and David repents. That's what happens in the middle of this story. In other words, the call to repentance and David's response is in the middle and it's there on purpose. Which means that we can't come to this story and read it and I can't preach it to you without begging the question, how will you, how will I, how will we respond to what God is trying to teach us in this story. And if we're honest, this is a difficult story, right? I mean, David commits adultery and probably worse than adultery and murder. And God forgives David and instead takes his own son. It's tragic, right? It's heart-wrenching. But it's a call to repentance for every single person in this room. Because the first lesson of this story, please hear me, the first lesson of this story is that God takes your sin very seriously. More seriously than you realize He does. He does not actually let the guilty walk away unpunished. If you think that's how it works, if you think that's what grace is or what forgiveness is in the Bible, that God just says, 
yeah, I know you did that. We're just going to sweep that under the rug. If you think that's how God deals with us, then you're wrong. That's not love. That's not how God deals with sinners. Sin always equals death. Someone always dies because of sin. And if what God does in this story offends you, then you do not understand how serious your sin is before Him. You can't possibly. The second lesson, if that's true, then we need a substitute. In fact, a son of David has become our substitute. You see what God did there? And there's a tension in that. It's good news, but it's not easy. Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now listen, if you read this as some kind of algebraic salvation formula and you miss the fact that this is God's only Son whom was crucified and the wrath of God fell on Him, you're missing the point. And some of you this morning may think that you're at your worst right now. And God could never forgive you for what you've done. And others in this room think you're at your best right now and you don't really understand your need for forgiveness. And God's answer to both sides is this. Don't underestimate the pain and the damage that your sin causes. But also don't underestimate God's love for sinners. And the cross shows us both. Right? I mean, if God had to crucify His only Son to make a way for us to be made right with Him, then that shows us that our sin is pretty darn serious. And God obviously loves us more than we realize. And there's a table spread before us that we don't deserve to eat. But the Son of God died to make us sons and daughters so that like Mephibosheth, we could be invited to eat at the table of the king. Adulterers, murderers, gossips, all manner of sinners washed in the blood of Jesus. Let's pray.